for those of you who've been, been with us, us uh, for a while, you'll remember that we've been looking at the book of Daniel for quite some time, and we've completed uh, 10 chapters of that book, but we took a bit of a detour the last few uh, weeks, uh, essentially because we were approaching Christmas time and New Year's, and we had the first chance to meet as a full church, uh, so we, we sort of took a bit of a break from that. But we have two chapters to go, and I'm hoping to complete those in the coming weeks. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. We'll read from verse 14 to 21 as we just recap a little bit about where we left off last time so we know where we're at. And I pray that uh, today we'll be able to complete not the whole of chapter 11, but um, there'll be a fair bit of history today. So you'll need to listen carefully. Hopefully it won't be too much detail. And don't worry about too much of a detail if you don't get it all. What the goal of today's sermon will be is to show us how accurate God is about and how accurately he knows the future. Okay, And that's the goal of this particular passage and sermon today, that God knows the end from the beginning perfectly. There is not one detail that escapes his notice. So that should increase our faith. Okay, Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. This is the angel Gabriel speaking here uh, as he has visited Daniel after Daniel has seen a vision. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. When he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remain no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me, and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. When I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity that we have to look into your word and we pray for your blessings upon us as we seek to understand it. We pray that you'll not only open our eyes to the truth, but that you would open our eyes to how we should live that truth. And I pray that our, straight, our faith would be strengthened today as I seek to share this message with my brethren here. I pray that your spirit would work unfettered within our hearts and that he would draw us closer to yourself. Help us to be more like you, Help us to see your truth in the midst of the darkness of this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So here we have, and we finished up with chapter 10, with an encounter between an angel and a man. And the man was Daniel, who had seen a vision, and God had sent the angel Gabriel to Daniel to now explain what he had seen. I mean, can you imagine if you were living in you know, a thousand years ago and you saw what was going on today? Can you imagine if you saw a TikTok video a thousand years ago, what you'd make of it? Or if you saw the internet, or if you saw cars driving down streets, or if you saw, it would all look quite strange to you. 
And when, so when these prophets were given visions about what was coming up in the future, and that is really evident when you read, you know, Revelation, that he's trying to describe things that he had never seen before, but God gave him the exact words to write so that we can be encouraged by that. To see those things would have been quite daunting. In fact, he had what he had seen had affected him so much, he said that he, he had lost, he, he couldn't even breathe. He had essentially fainted on the ground and and. and and Gabriel had to try to lift him up and try to give him strength again. And so here we have in chapter now 11, the follow-on from that. So this is the detail that Gabriel was giving to Daniel. And so chapter 11 has a huge amount of detail, of historical detail. And what, what's interesting about the book of Daniel is that the details that we're going to read now together in chapter 11 are so accurately confirmed in the history books that critics, that many critics have said impossible. And they've actually said that's so impossible that, that, that he could have had these details before that what they've, um, what they've uh, surmised or what they've suggested is that Daniel never really even existed, that someone had made up this guy called Daniel or that this book was written at least 400 years later. Now, that would have made, if there was a Daniel, a liar, okay? Or there is no such a person as Daniel at all. Or it's a figment of someone's imagination or whoever was writing this stuff was trying to deceive everyone. But the book of Daniel has been so thoroughly vetted and verified that it's impossible really to make that argument anymore. He was, he was in those days of Babylon and Persia. It was written in those days. And in fact, there is so much verification of it that even other prophets like Ezekiel, who were living in his days, actually mention him in his book, in their books. So either Ezekiel is also made up and every other book is also made up, which they know is also not true. But when you see someone like Ezekiel mention Daniel three times and refers to him as a holy man, okay, and it's someone who had who had a close relationship with the Lord, it's impossible to argue that point anymore. The chapter we will be examining today, this morning, like chapter 8, provides a prophetic view um, of history from the perspective of how it would how it would affect the people of God, specifically Israel. Okay? So this will come out in this sermon today, how more and more this reveals this whole thing is really about God's chosen people and how they were affected by the world's empires. And so, as a case in point, the various kingdoms, whether, uh, sorry, it's going to look at the change or, or the transition from the Persian overlords they had to the Grecian overlords that they had. And that's why um, Gabriel suggests here and says that you know, as soon as he finishes with Daniel, he's going to go and fight the Prince of Persia. And after the Prince of Persia comes or finishes with him, he's going to have to fight the Prince of Grisha because he's arriving. And so this is specifically about that time, about what would happen when the Prince of Grisha, who is another angel, a fallen angel, um, would come and how it would affect God's people. And so... It even ranges all the way up to the end of this chapter, which we won't reach today. It actually, this chapter 11 goes from the days when that transition happened all the way to the tribulation period, which hasn't happened yet, 
and which speaks about the Antichrist. We'll be looking at that particular part of it next week. But he mentions here that it's also this Michael, the archangel, and how Michael will stand up in the end days and he will deliver his people from a coming world empire. In fact, what it shows us and what a lot of Daniel shows us, as I've probably mentioned before, is that much of it actually doesn't just relate to earthly events and historical events as we can see them, but also shows us what's spiritually happening in the background. There are two parallel stories running in this particular book. One is a historical thing which actually shows the world's empires and leaders and the things that they do, and the other is actually telling us or revealing to us there's a spiritual aspect to the whole thing and how the, the angelic realm is actually involved in what we do on the earth. And as a case in point, the various kingdoms, whether, whether they be Babylon or Persia, Greek or, or Rome, may have had many kings. For example, the Romans had many kings, the Persians had many kings. Those empires each had not just one person, but multiple people that were ruling, but there was always only one angelic being that was in the background for each of those. And as we read today, and what why people get so bogged down with chapter 11 is it keeps referring to these people called the king of the south and the king of the north. Have you read this passage before? Have you, read, have you heard those two terms before? And what people get a bit mixed up in is, is they, they think to themselves there's only one king of the south and there's only one king of the north, but there are tons of kings of the south and kings of the north. And so what it's telling us is the, the even though the kings may change in each of those empires, the, the course is particularly set, and behind those kingdoms uh, is an angel, okay, that's, that's messing around with this whole thing, and that will come out today. And so look at Daniel 10.20 for a moment. It says, And then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia, when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. So while Persia had Darius, Cyrus, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, Tambesis, all these different kings, okay, the prince of Persia was one. And the same will, will look now for Greece and for Rome. So the angelic history book is linked with the Earth's history book. And we can't see everything they're doing. They, by the looks of it, can see everything that we're doing. And God sees everything that everyone's doing, okay? And that's what's amazing about the Word of God. It's so perfect. And God's revelation in it is so uh, complete that it's impossible to argue that this book wasn't given to us by special revelation. Okay? Just a, just a quick side note. There is general revelation and there is special revelation. General revelation in the Bible says that the that the the, uh, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, for instance, right? You can see God's handiwork in the heavens and the way the universe works. That's general revelation. We find that out by just seeing what's around us. But special revelation is what God has given us in his book, where God has specifically written words for us that no man could have actually known if they had not been given to, to them by God himself. And what we hold in our hands is called special Revelation. So let's let's begin with verse 1. Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Also I, and this is Gabriel continuing to speak from, from the end of chapter 10, Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, 
Even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, who's the angel Gabriel talking about confirming and strengthening? He's not talking about Darius the Mede that he's strengthening. He's talking about Michael. Because Michael, the archangel Michael, you'll notice in verse 21, he says, None withholdeth me in these things but Michael, your prince. But in the first year of Darius, I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. So these guys, these angels, are supporting each other in this in this angelic war that's going on in the background. Look at verse 2. And now he says to Daniel, Now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grisha. Okay, so he says there's going to be four kings that are coming up, and... They're going, to, they're going to be one successive after the other, but the fourth one is going to be quite powerful and he's going to try to subdue Greece. Why is he going to try and subdue Greece? Well, Greece was rising as a power. Okay? And so at this point, we find that already it's perfectly accurate. At this point of history, Cyrus was the king of Persia, and we see that he's that Daniel says that he was in chapter 10, he says, I was in the third year of Cyrus's reign, when he received his vision and Gabriel comes to explain it. Well, after Cyrus, we know in history that the next king was Cambyses, then Pseudo-Smyrnus, and then Darius I, who came after him. The fourth king was a fellow called Xerxes. Anyone heard of Xerxes before? Okay. The reason you've probably heard of Xerxes is because Xerxes began a military campaign against who? Greece. Okay? And so, once again, the word of God is perfectly accurate. It told us the fourth king was going to be great. And in your Bibles, he is called Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. So if you ever read the name Ahasuerus, that's referring directly to Xerxes. Now, Xerxes was a great king. And he tried to subdue Greece, but actually prevailed. When he launched that campaign in 481, BC. From that point, Gabriel doesn't give us any more kings in Persia. You know what? Because Persia was already on the decline and Greece was starting to rise up. And so we find that at that point, by 331 BC, someone else comes on, on the, uh, the historical plane who now flips that whole thing. No more Persia. Persia's declined. Regardless of how they tried to maintain their power, they lost more and more and more of it. And the next fellow to come up was an interesting guy called Alexander the Great. Yeah. And so verse 3, verse 3, someone likes Alexander the Great. So verse 3, it says there, A mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, which means his descendants, not according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. So the, the mighty king obviously spoken about here, and has been mentioned already a number of times in previous chapters, was Alexander the Great, who died in 323 BC. Now he conquered all of Persia and more. Okay, so his kingdom was 
bigger than, than this, but within a few short years, he had conquered more land than anyone else before him, but he died very young. And his kingdom, we know, was not passed down to his children. Okay, It was passed down and divided among four generals. So you see where it says there that he said he would be divided toward the four winds of heaven? Well, it was divided among four of his generals and not to his posterity. In fact, he actually had a son. Um, he had a son, and this son, uh, who was still an infant, was mysteriously murdered when Alexander passed away. So he didn't get to pass his kingdom on to anyone else. As it was the custom in those days, the descendants of defeated kings, so if you were a king and you defeated another king and overtook his kingdom, what would you do with him and his family? You'd get rid of them. You know why you'd get rid of them? Because if you left the descendants of that king, they would rise up later on to try to overcome you because they would say, we're the rightful rulers here. And they try to rally the people say, when, when kings conquered other kings in those days, they'd wipe out the whole family, all the descendants of that king, so no one can try and claim the throne after. And so here we find that the, the generals were given this kingdom, but what's interesting is, is that even though he had a son, someone decided to do the son in, because you know what, even though he was an infant, what would happen when he became 18 years of age? So someone, probably one of those particular um, uh, generals, decided it would be a good idea to get rid of the son as well. So now, as is a common thread throughout the whole book of Daniel, the focus stays on the people who are directly, will be directly influencing the people of God, the Jews, Israel. And so now we begin this interesting situation where he mentions the king of the north and the king of the south. He's not mentioning four generals anymore. He's not mentioning anyone else. He mentions these two people. When I was first saved and I started, you know, reading the book of Daniel or whatever, the two biggest, um, uh, strongest countries in the world were, if you understand your dates, were Russia and America. So if you grew up in the 80s, there was always a fear of nuclear war and that nuclear war was always going to be between the, the, the Soviet Union and Russia. And I knew that Russia was north of, of, of thing. And so I assumed in my readings that the south must be America because who's Russia going to be fighting? There's no one as strong as America. So I figured to myself, oh, man, it's going to be this battle between Russia and America and he's going to come in and that. And then later on I found out that wasn't the case. And it's interesting when you when you sort of get those ideas in your head, you try to make everything fit as well. You know what I mean? And so, oh, the the the, the ships of Chitam are going to come down, and I think that's got to be England. And I'm trying to I'm trying to work all these things out and trying to fit them into what was happening in the 1980s, and it didn't work. It fell apart. But most of this has already been fulfilled, as we're going to see now. So it says in verse five. The king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. Now, okay, so as I've said, 
He focuses now on the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, what they are, are those uh, two Greek generals, okay? One to the north of Israel and one to the, guess, the south. One who controls the Syrian uh, section and one who controls Egypt. Syria is north, Egypt is south. The south were called the Ptolemies. Have you ever heard of them? The north were called the Seleucids. And you've probably heard of them well as well. And the reason that these are so important and are mentioned so many times is because who's in the middle? Israel. And so they kept on fighting each other and Israel was always caught, caught in the middle of these two warring parties, of the north and the south. And these two families, the Ptolemies, and the Seleucids were always at war with each other for a long, long period of time. And so it says here, the king of the south, or it says the king of the south shall be strong. They were the Ptolemies. And one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion, his dominion shall be a great dominion. So the king of the south, as I mentioned, are the Ptolemies. They had control of Egypt and all the land, including Israel, okay, including all of, the, of that coast up there. The king of the north, as I mentioned with the Seleucids, um, were, the, were the family from where the Antiochus line came from. Okay, and We've spoken about Antiochus Epiphanes in a previous sermon. They controlled Syria. And so these two kingdoms are at war with each other. And we find the next 16 verses now covers about a 200-year history between those two kingdoms who were fighting for control of that land. And the Greeks, you, you probably know the word, you've heard the word Palestine, and we tend to not use the word Palestine as much, we tend to use the name Israel because we refer to that as the Holy Land. But the name Palestine is, or, or, is actually comes or derives from a Greek word. You see, the Greeks had called that area Galistia. Galistia is a Greek Word. I might, might, might not be emphasizing the right, it could be Philistia or Philistia or whatever it is. Philistia is probably right. Um, the Greeks had called that area Philistia, and later the Romans called that same area Palestina. Where does that come from? The Philistines. Okay, so the Philistines who were at war with Israel for most of the time, the, the Romans and the Greeks used them as, or named it after them, rather than the Jews, okay? That's where that name actually comes from. So, I'll now seek to give you what happened in history in comparison to what's been prophesied. Look at verse 6. And in the end of years, they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. She shall not, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall she stand, shall he stand, nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Okay. Remember I told you that if you're a king and you conquered someone else, you'd want to wipe out their whole family? The other thing that kings would do, and this is what we see in the royal families throughout all of Europe, is you intermarry. And the reason you intermarry, the reason why you would give your daughter to the son of, an, of another king, you know, to, to marry, is that you would form alliances. 
Because when your family became connected, you became allies, okay? You became family. And family tends to stick together, right? So in this particular case, what they were trying to do is in order to create a stronger alliance between, or and some sort of alliance because they're at war with each other all the time, the Ptolemies, okay, sent their daughter, Berenice, who was the, the daughter of Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, married the serious king Antiochus II Theos. What were they trying to do? They were trying to create a union between them that would stop the actual wars from happening. Okay? And so what ended up happening, though, which is really interesting, is that Antiochus divorced his wife in order to marry Berenice. Okay? So he said, no, nah, I'm going I'm to get rid of my existing wife. Okay? And I think he had a son with her already. And he said, all right, I think this is a good idea. Send across Berenice and we'll have a wedding and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Well, it didn't actually work out like that. Notice it says here, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm. Um, Antiochus had a, had a son with his previous wife. Okay, Now, you know how, the, how, women, how they say, that, you know, what's the woman scorn business? Yeah, well, she wasn't too happy, was she? He didn't get rid of her, and he didn't get rid of his son. He just put them to the side and married, married Berenice. Well, his wife wasn't apparently too happy with the arrangement, and so she managed to murder Berenice and the child that he had with Berenice and managed to poison Antiochus himself. So this is a lady on a mission here, okay? And what she ended up doing was, was let that whole plan went down the drain there, but she managed to get her son then promoted to the throne because she said, well, here's the rightful king to actually sit on that throne. And so she did everything for her son to see that he got what he deserved. And she managed to wipe out Antiochus, Berenice, and their son, so there was no chance of them uh, getting up on that throne. So his name, her son was Seleucus the second. And so the story takes now another twist. In verse 7, it says, But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal against them and shall prevail. Okay, so what are her roots? Where were her roots? In the Ptolemy. She came from the south, right? She was a, a, a she was a descendant of Ptolemy's. So when Ptolemy II died, Berenice's brother ascended the throne. And he is called, guess what? Ptolemy III. They weren't too, they weren't too, uh, they weren't too, they weren't from Ptolemy II to Ptolemy III, okay? And her brother built up this massive army and marched into Syria into the king of the north's empire and dealt with him all right. He not only defeated him, but he actually looted all the treasure from Syria, from his storehouses, from his temples and everything, and took it all the way back to Egypt. Okay? Well, his sister got murdered, and he wasn't going to let that happen, and they were now his enemies, so he wanted to make sure he got even with all of them. And look at what it says in verse 8. And he shall carry captives into Egypt, uh, their gods, 
with their princes and with their precious vessels of silver and of gold, and it should continue more years in the king of the north. So what did he do? He looted the north. He looted the king of the north. He defeated him in a massive uh, battle, and he looted all of his treasure and took princes, gifts, gold, everything, all the way back to the south. Now, what do you do if you're the king of the north? You're going to wait your time and you're going to build up your armies and then you're going to, you're going to get even, aren't you? Okay? So verse 9 then says, So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. But his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. And the king of the south shall be moved with choler, that's hatred, and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And when he hath taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. So let me just give you a wrap-up of that, because it may seem a little bit um, uh, uh, difficult to understand. When the king of the south returned home, the sons of the king of the north, okay, uh, were determined that they were never going to be defeated again. So they raised an army for themselves and they assembled a massive army and decided to attack Egypt. Now, okay? the successive sons of Antiochus were then constantly at war. Notice how it says, the king of the shelves uh, shall be moved with collar. We're, we're all going here. Verse 12. And when he hath taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up and he shall cast down many ten thousands that shall not be strengthened by it. The king of the north uh, were moved with hatred for what the Ptolemies had done to them, and so they would be constantly at war with each other for hundreds of years later, okay? And tens of thousands of soldiers will pay with their lives for this rivalry between those two. And so the sons of Antiochus raised up a massive army, said, we're going to go and fight uh, the, uh, Egypt, and they lost. In fact, Ptolemy, he beat their armies. They didn't win, and they had to go back home, and they lost a major, major battle. But Ptolemy's victory was only uh, shortly lived because 13 years later, they raised another army, and they came back again. And this time, they defeated Ptolemy, and they took Israel and Gaza. Ptolemy, who was in charge of Israel, lost it for the first time and now was under the Seleucids. So look at verse 13 with me. For the king of the north shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army with many riches. Now, oh, this is what I just told you. They've, they've come with a massive army. And in those days, in those times, there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fail. So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand. Neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his will, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the, look at that phrase, the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. 
So imagine if you were living in the land of Israel and you saw the armies from the, because you had, they had to pass by you. They had to pass by your land. So you see armies from the north coming through, through you. Then you see the armies from the south coming up. And then you see the armies of the north coming down. And some, and now they had fought for that particular land. And so you're, you're the meat and the sandwich. You're stuck and you're constantly seeing this rivalry taking place. And now we're also seeing this transition. They've been under the Ptolemies for over a hundred years. And now they flipped and they were now under the control of Antiochus or the Seleucid family. What was going to happen? What They didn't know. And you'll notice it also says in verse 14 there that many people would now fight against the king of the south. So in other words, there were probably a lot of different groups that were around that weren't happy with what was going on with the Ptolemies, the way they were being ruled by them. And so they decided, well, this is our chance to get even with them. This is our chance because the, the, the king of the north has got this massive army. Let's align ourselves with him. Let's be on the winning side because it looks like he's going to be taking over our area now, our land. And so we want to make sure we're on his, in his good books. And that's what they actually did. And so there were a number of Jews who aligned themselves with the north and saw it as an opportunity also to maybe get some independence for themselves. And see, notice where it says there, in verse 14, also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves. Huh? The robbers of thy people. Well, it seems as if that those people who wanted to take control of Israel for themselves, God called robbers, but they didn't actually get to complete their goal. So the glorious land is now under the rule of the Seleucids. At the time of Antioch III, who was called the Great as well, but something else was rising up in power during this time. So while these two were fighting it out, the north, the south, the north, the south, and Israel stuck in between, someone else was starting to, to, uh, to rise up in power and becoming more influential, and that was the Romans. The Romans, who were outside of the kingdom of Greece, that Rome wasn't conquered by Greece. The Italians weren't conquered towards the French. They weren't conquered by them. So... They were building up more and more influence, becoming more and more powerful during while these while these guys were fighting it out for influence as well. Look at verse 17. It says, He shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her that she shall not stand on his side. Uh, neither be for him. Now, what's, what's that talking about? Well, we found out historically the Romans were now getting involved in what was going on with his fights. And they said to Antiochus, they said to the Seleucids of the north who had conquered uh, Palestine, who had conquered Israel, and were still trying to fight. They were constantly fight, fighting with each other. The Romans now got involved. Those Italians always trying to get in the middle. Oh, hang on. And they said to the, they said to the, uh, the Seleucids, they said, you'd better make peace with the Ptolemies, otherwise we're going to start getting involved here, okay? And so what ended up happening is that Antiochus decided to offer his daughter, Cleopatra, to marry Ptolemy V. So remember what happened before? The Ptolemies gave their daughter to, the, to, to Antiochus to marry. How, how That went really well, right? And so now Antiochus uh, was 
because he was being pressured by the Italians, by the Romans, he said, all right, all right, I'll give my daughter to uh, the Ptolemies to marry, to marry Ptolemy V. Um, but notice how it says there, thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women corrupting her. But she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. Well, you know what happened? Instead of just giving his daughter to Ptolemy to marry, he tried to use his daughter as a spy. So what he tried to do with her was, he said, all right, you marry this guy, but you report back to me everything that's going on over there, so we'll know when the right time to attack. Guess what his daughter did? She didn't. It it says that even though he did that and he corrupted her with that, it actually says that she shall not stand on his side either before him. What ended up happening historically is she, she decided to stay with her husband. And to support him, well, good on her. Okay, and so he got upset. Okay, he got upset. It didn't actually happen. So what it, what ended up happening is, have a look at verse eighteen. That failed. After this, shall he turn his face unto the isles, and shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the, the thought of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So after Antiochus failed to conquer Greece, because he tried to actually conquer, notice how it says here, it turned to his own land. He was trying to, he was trying to, now he failed in the south, but what was to the north of Syria is Greece. And so there was another general ruling after that area, and he said to himself, I'm going to start, I'm going to conquer that area now. And I'm going to take Crete and all the other Greek islands. Now it says he, he turned his attention to the isles. Well, they're the Greek islands, as we know. So he started knocking those off one by one, and he said to himself, you know what? I'm not going to bother about the south anymore. I'm going to now take over Greece. I'm going to be the king of all of Greece as well, because he was Greek. But Remember I said to you, someone else was rising up around the background there? Well, they hadn't gone away. And so when he tried to overtake Greece, um, these other fellows called the Romans who had an interest in Greece and in the capital of that area, who were actually already getting tribute from that area, who were the protectors of that area. You know how the, the mafia works? You know, ever heard of the mafia works? They come into your establishment, your, um, your business, and they say to you, um, we're here to protect you. Okay, if you pay us protection money, right, we'll make sure that no one causes any problems for you. But if you don't pay protection money, you're going to have a whole lot of problems. Okay, so they are both the solution and the problem at the same time. Well, the Romans had organized with the Greeks to be their protectors, didn't they? Okay, the Romans had formed an alliance with the Greeks and said, we'll protect you if anyone else comes to stir problems. So what does Antiochus fall into? He says, I'm going to take Greece now for myself. We hadn't banked on the Romans not being happy with that particular idea. So when it says there in verse, um, it says there that, hang on a sec, let me just finish with this particular thought. Yeah, he didn't factor on the Romans and he was defeated by the Romans. The Romans jumped in and end up, ended up sending all their ships to actually defeat him and he actually lost 
and he was actually killed by the Persians because he got up so upset that as he was as he was coming back from from his defeat, he tried to knock off a few Persian temples. You know, as you do. You know what I mean? So we, we found a Persian temple. Thought, hey, there's going to be gold in there for sure. Tried to knock that off, and the Persians managed to do him in on the way home. So he didn't actually last on the way back. Verse twenty says. Then, so he's gone, that king's gone, then shall stand up in his estate, in his particular place, a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So after that Antiochus uh, got done, another king came in his place called Seleucus, Seleucus IV. And see how it says there he's a raiser of taxes? You know what happens when you lose a war against someone? They make you pay reparation. Don't they? So the Romans, because the Seleucids had lost against them, they said to they said to this new king, Seleucids, they said, You have to pay us reparations for your foolish war. Okay, you have to pay us taxes now. So what does he do? He raises taxes on his own people. That's what it says. He's a raiser of taxes. He's raising taxes because he's got to pay off the Romans now. Huh? And why doesn't he last too long? Well, you know, when you raise taxes too much on people, there's going to be someone who's not happy with it. So someone killed him. Okay? Let's continue. Verse 21. The next person, before we read this, and this is where this, this crunch time comes here, because after the death of Seleucus, Antiochus Epiphanes arrives on the scene. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, I've already preached about, he's the one who is like this picture of the Antichrist is going to come in the future. What he does is almost identical to what's coming, and this is his entrance into this particular scene. So verse 21 says, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honour of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Okay. Antiochus wasn't in line for the kingdom. In fact, he had a brother. Okay. And his brother died. And he had a uh, and that fellow's father was being held captive. So he managed to connive his way into that position. Okay? Notice how it says by flatteries, he gains the kingdom. So he's gone and made a whole lot of promises. If you back me up to be the king, I'll give you that block of land over there. If you back me up to be the king, I'll give you this promise and that promise, right? And so by flatteries, he gets himself to become the king. And the Bible calls him a vile person. He's a, this fellow is a, a really good manipulator of people. He knows how to manipulate them. He knows how to get out of them. He knows how to make promises to, to, to get ahead for himself. And he, he becomes more and more powerful. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he hates the Jews. He hates them because they can't be controlled. They're not like all the other areas that he controls. They are an unruly type of people who have their own God and stick to their own laws. They want to worship in their own way and they don't conform to everyone else's rules and he begins to hate them, but he also begins to create a plan to try to corrupt them and to try to get them to change 
even using their own people. And so he becomes a persecutor of the Jews. And he raises an army that none can stand before him. So he defeats now, after a long, long time, the Ptolemies from the south. Look at verse 23. Actually, before we go to 23, I haven't told you one more thing. Verse 22 says, Notice how it says, And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown before him, and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. He managed to take the high priest of Israel and to get him replaced with his, with his own brother, okay, who was a Greek, who wasn't even a Jew. Now, I don't know if you know much about the Old Testament laws. You can't have a, a Greek as a high priest in the temple. Well, he managed to do that. So he overcame even what he calls here the prince of the covenant, who was the high priest in Israel at the time. But then have a look what it says here in verse 23. And after the league be made with him, he shall work deceitfully. For he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. He shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest part of the places of the province. And he shall do that which has his fathers had not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey, the spoil, and riches, yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great mighty army, but he shall not stand. For they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that feed the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many, uh, and many shall fall down slain. So Antiochus took advantage of a split in the Ptolemies in the south. He wasn't, they hadn't worried a lot for a while about what was going on in the south. Remember, he tried to conquer uh, Greece. The Romans came and ruined that particular plan. But when Antiochus Epiphanes took the scene, he turned his attention back to Egypt. And at that particular time, there were two Ptolemies who were fighting for the rule. Okay? So what do you do when you want to try and conquer some area that's having a division? You take advantage of that division. You actually cause it to split even more. That's what he did. He backed one of the Ptolemies and said, if you support me, I will support you. And he actually sought to, while they were fighting amongst each other, he went and took all of Alexandria and the top. So he was conquering while they were fighting down south, okay? And so he took advantage of them and he supported one side over the other, but he didn't actually win. The other Ptolemy won, and so he realised what was going on and raised an army to try to defeat this Antiochus. But while he was while they were raising their army, he's, he, Antiochus plundered all of the temples, all of their, whatever he could to take back with him to Syria. And what ended up happening is that, uh, that Antiochus was trying to usurp power from the Ptolemies by making deals with people who, notice how it says there, yea, they that feed the portion of his meat shall destroy him. He managed to get the counsellors of the Ptolemies to back him up. So the counsellors of Ptolemy, who were meant to be supporting him, were giving him bad advice so that he would lose against him. And verse 27 then tells us, 
And both these king's hearts shall do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at a time appointed. So what ended up happening is that while he tried to, remember he was backing up one of the, one of the Ptolemies against the other one? While he was plundering all of them, those two actually got together and said, there's something going on here. I think he's trying to take advantage of us. Why don't we join forces to protect Egypt? And he ended up having to fight against both of them, okay, at the same time. And so one of those Ptolemies became king, and they tried to create some sort of a, a peaceful resolution to the whole thing, but they were both lying when they actually came together. And so it says, notice this, and both these kings' hearts shall do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. So Antiochus lyingly told Ptolemy that he would help him gain the throne, okay, and hold the throne if he supported him and if he allowed him to take whatever he had taken before. But it didn't work out. They joined forces and they, they drove him out again. So he wasn't a happy camper. So when he got driven out, guess what land he has to pass through? Israel, again, back up to Syria. And so look at verse 28. He's failed again in Egypt. Then shall he return into his land with great riches. So he's flogged up all those temples, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant. And he shall do exploits and return to his own land. On his way back home to Syria, Antiochus wasn't a happy camper because that whole thing failed. And guess what happened? The Jews thought they'd have a, a revolution. They thought, wow, now's a good time for us to actually revolt against this guy and let's see if we can claim back the temple for ourselves. They got rid of the Greek, the Greek uh, uh, guy in the temple and they tried to, um, and they tried to cause a revolution. Um, but they managed to get him at his worst. And with his army, he managed to kill 80,000 men who were Jews, who were trying to revolt, who were trying to rise up against him. He slaughtered 80,000 Jews, 40,000 captive, and sold them all to slavery at the same time. So let's say to verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south. Now he's gone, going back toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For the ships uh, of Shitsun shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant again. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Now this is where this really influences and affects Israel. We're coming to the end of it now. After he returned back home, he'd slaughtered the Jews and their revolution. He said he thought to himself, I'm going to try again to take Egypt. Okay? And so he starts creating, he creates an army and starts heading down south again. Once again, all the way through, through Jerusalem and through Israel. And what ends up happening is that, notice how it says the ships of Chittim got involved. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Um, the Romans were still looking around in the background, weren't they? They heard that he was actually heading down south again and trying to conquer Egypt. And their ship, they sent all their ships from Cyprus 
to meet him and he lost. The Romans actually had defeated him and he lost again, the guy. But notice how it says that after, after um, the ships of Chittim come against him, therefore he shall be grieved. And then he, he has indignation against the Holy Covenant. Who does he get upset with? He gets upset with the Jews again, right? As you do, right? So he's lost that thing again, right? He, he starts heading back up north, and he's got it. He's got it in for the Jews. And when they get to the, they get back to Jerusalem. Okay, they find that the Jews had had taken out once again the guy he'd installed there. What they ended up doing is that they took control of the temple. He his men were put on guard there. The Jews were not allowed to circumcise their babies anymore. They weren't allowed to offer sacrifices at all anymore. He installed his own high priest there. His, his soldiers sacrificed a pig on the altar to Zeus. And then what they ended up doing was they put a statue of Zeus, their, their greatest god. They went and put that in the Holy of Holies. Okay? And so they desecrated the temple with pig's blood, with um, with a statue of a of a of a fake God, and they stopped his people from being able to even um, even perform their own ceremonies and follow their own laws. And notice how it says in verse 30, at the end of it, it says, and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. What he also did is he knew by this particular state, now we're talking hundreds of years, there were a good percentage of Jews that were now not really Jews, they were living like Greeks. They'd forsaken the Bible, they'd forsaken God, and they were living like Greeks. They were doing everything the Greeks were doing. He's, what he decided to do was to utilise them. And he was offering them favours, supporting them, if they would influence the faithful ones. So he used those who, who forsook their own covenant to corrupt the ones who were trying to be faithful to their own covenant. And so we have in verse 31, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That's exactly what he did. In every part, it's perfectly true with what was predicted hundreds of years before. And so this is the culmination of why this historical detail and prophecy has been given to us. Because the people of God who were reading these words, can you imagine his people who had these words written for them in those days, already knew what was coming up? already knew that. And so they could look at, read these words and say, God already knows what had happened. Look, he actually told us that the king of the north was going to attack the king of the south. He already knew he was, he was going to lose. He already told us about what was going to happen. He's already warned us about this guy that's coming up. He's already told us well ahead of time. They, they'd be already preparing themselves for the persecutions that were being allowed by their own God to try and to prove them. They already knew the sufferings that were coming up ahead of time. 
And so we read this final portion about what, what is to become of his people and why he gave this information to them. And just for us, right, these principles apply to us as well so that we have something to take away with us apart from just seeing the word of God and, and saying, oh, well, look, God's word is perfectly accurate. I'd expect you already to believe that, right? Because you know it's perfectly accurate in any way. This is just verifies that and hopefully brings that out even more for you. But what I'm hoping that we can do is that we can learn from the principles now of what he expected his own people to do because we are in a similar situation. We are living as, as exiles in this world. We are not we are not citizens of this world. The Bible says we are foreigners and we are pilgrims. We're only passing through, okay? And so it reveals to us God's not only his, his omniscience, that he knows everything but of his power because he, even though he allowed his people to go through suffering, it's for a purpose. There is nothing that you and I go through without it being for a purpose. If God can control tomorrow, hundreds of years in the, in the future, from their perspective, if he already knew what was going to happen in the minutest detail and tell you about it before, then he not only knows about tomorrow, he can take care of your tomorrow. If he can know about their history hundreds of years in advance, he can tell you your history and knows your history tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen to you in a week, in a month, in a year. And so we don't have to be worrying about that. And so it tells us at the end of verse 32, it says, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits, right? The ones that know their God are strong. It's the ones that don't know their God that aren't strong. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you have a relationship with him, you can be strong. God expects you to be strong. And you can do amazing things for God. And we've seen in the Bible this particular Story happened throughout all the ages. God's people, even though they were persecuted and always small in number, did amazing things. They may have been outnumbered by the world. They may not have, they may have been ridiculed by the world. They may have been under the, the dominance of other cultures and other, other kingdoms in the world, but they did amazing things because God was working through them. And this is a message for us, is that you just need to be faithful to the Lord and you can do amazing things. And it's not amazing things from the, from the point of view of the world, but amazing things from God's perspective is when you are faithful in the small things, God will turn those things into eternal things. See, great things are things that last forever, not just things that last for a short time. So when we are faithful to the Lord, doing great things is simply obeying. And in obeying God, we do great things because the fruits of those are eternal. And I'll just share with you one thing that's eternal. If you bring one person to the Lord in your life, that's a great thing because that person will be a testimony of that work for all of eternity. That's what is a great work. So let's continue and let's finalise what he wants us to learn and what he wants his own people to learn. It says in verse 33, and they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall 
to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. The future of Daniel's people would continue to be a struggle for all ages. I mean, I don't know any other group of people in the world that has actually been more persecuted, attacked, vilified, and everything else than the Jewish people. The devil has tried to destroy them on multiple occasions through, through almost every every century that's, that's, that's happened. And so it says here that the people of understanding will instruct many. Yes, they have. And you know it's, what's beautiful about that particular phrase, that those of understanding will instruct many, not only has that been fulfilled with Old Testament prophets and in those people that, that taught, but that's still happening today. It's happened, it's happened because they wrote those words of instruction for us. And so we're still being instructed by those ones that had understanding. You see, King David was a man of understanding, and he wrote down all those psalms, and we're still being instructed by those psalms. We're still learning by those psalms. So when it's said they will instruct many, they are. How many people have learned and been encouraged by God's word? The prophets... The apostles who wrote the, the New Testament, those words we read are instructing us even today. And so when it says there that the people of understanding shall instruct many, that's perfectly true. But it also says they shall fall by the sword and by flame, and by captivity and by spoil. And they have. The history of God's people on this planet has been they've been persecuted, burned at the stake, they've been killed. They've been murdered. They've been tried to be subdued by, by people who don't want them telling the truth. And so that's what we've seen in the Old Testament. That's what we saw when the church started, and we've seen millions of people die as a result of their faith. Which is the most persecuted faith in the world today? Still Christianity. Because people of faith are sharing the good news, and there are those in power who don't want that shared. And so they're persecuted. They're locked up. They're taken captive. They're killed. Burned alive sometimes. Okay? But it's a great testimony that this particular thing here is so true. And it says that they'll receive a little help over the ages. There may have been some who help occasionally. But notice it says, but many shall clear to them with flatteries. Because they want to take advantage of them. Beware of people of, who flatter you. Beware of people who, you know, tell you how wonderful you actually are. Because when someone's telling you how wonderful you are, sometimes that means they want something from you. And by notice how Antiochus, with flatteries, tried to create people around him that would support him. People still play the same games today. Okay? So... Psalm 12, 2 says, they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbour. With flattering lips and with a double tongue and a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off the flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. This is what we have around us today. This has always been the case. There's not more of it. There's just more people around today, right? But they're doing the same things they were doing back then. But look at, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay. 
Who the Apostle Paul already says when he speaks about fluttering lips? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is our witness. Paul never sought to take advantage of people with the gospel that he was preaching. He never sought using flattering words to people to gain alliances with people so they would support him. He only ever spoke the truth. And this is what we've been called to do as believers, to simply speak the truth in love. Not to influence other people to try to follow us, not to, not to gain popularity in the world by trying to, trying to be nice to everyone. You cannot possibly please everyone in life. You can forget it. You can throw that one out the, out the door. And so I know that I've had multiple conversations with people about sharing the gospel and how sometimes it's really hard to do that because you're looking for that thing and you don't want to offend and you don't want to... Whatever you do, don't do it to build up your own self-esteem. It's not about self-esteem. This is not about building up popularity. I know there are preachers in the world out there who have thousands and thousands in their church and they're telling people exactly what they want to hear. And I promise never the case again. Be careful of people who tell you what you want to hear. Today we are living in more bubbles than ever before. Okay? And people will tell you what you want to hear. If, if they know this bubble exists, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. Be careful of people who are telling you exactly what you want to hear. Beware of people who are seeking to gain influence by drawing you to themselves. Beware of, pe beware of people in sheep's clothing who are really wolves in the Because the wolf doesn't come to you like a wolf. He comes to you like a sheep. He's going to come to you like a brother who loves you, who understands you. Let me tell you what you want to hear. Let me tell you this. Be careful about people who are seeking to influence you and gain your trust. We live in a time when people are heaping on themselves teachers who are telling them exactly what they want to hear. I mean, the reason we don't sell Joel Osteen in this church or Joyce Myers or anyone like that is because they essentially are telling you what you want to hear. They tell you you can make, you can have the life that you want now. It's all about now. It's all about gaining this. And God's going to give you all the desires of your heart without explaining what the desires of your heart should be. So if I want that big house on that hill, God can give it to me if I just pray with enough faith, right? That's garbage. Explain it to the Apostle Paul. Explain it to all the apostles. Explain it to all the, all the believers in the early ages who were burnt at the stake. What, what were they praying for? They weren't not enough faith by the looks of it, huh? Obviously, Jesus didn't have enough faith either. They killed him as well. Be careful about people who tell you what you want to hear, who stroke your ego, who want to use you. We are simply called to be faithful to the truth, to always stand up for the truth and to affirm white doctrine. That's why 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word, be instant in season. Let's be ready. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they shall heap to themselves teachers having engineers. If we don't see that today, there's something we're missing here. Most of the world 
And I, as I, I drive down, I see, you might drive down some streets and you'll see these old churches, you know, um, Uniting Churches and Presbyterian Churches and, you know, all these different churches, and they're mainly empty. They're mainly empty. And I, and, I, and I cry within my heart when I see, you know how they've got the bulletin board at the front of the road and, they, and, they, and their main message is, you know, save the planet, you know what I mean, or, you know, welcome refugees or, you know, all right, you want to save the planet, you want to, you want to welcome refugees, I don't have anything, any problem with that. If you want to do that, do it. But that's not the gospel message. The church is not here to be to be preaching those messages. The church is here to to preach sound doctrine, and so they've replaced it with messages that think that the people want to hear. What's popular today? What does everyone want to hear? Oh, they want to hear about saving the planet and you know and global warming. So let's put a banner up about that. Let's make our church about global warming. Will that save one soul? That won't save one soul. And so they've forsaken doctrine and the word of God to tell people what they want to hear. They've replaced the word of God with the words of men. And so we know throughout all of history, the people of God have always been in the majority, right? No. They've always been in the minority. Now look at this church and we're only half of us here and I suspect that Either people are away or people are um, people are isolating or doing whatever. But I, I don't ever expect our church to have thousands of people. Wouldn't bank on that one. In fact, we'd probably split it up if there was a thousand people here because I couldn't get to know most people. And I think that part of ministry is actually getting to know people and getting to support them. But there are churches out there with tens of thousands of people. Lovely. The people of God have always suffered and died for their faith. But the promise here is that he uses that suffering to purge, to make white, to make holy, to draw closer to himself. And that should be the boldness that we have. Whether we live or whether we die, we live for him. And that's my prayer for all of us. Our goal is to know our God, to instruct as many as we can along the way, to be bold witnesses for him. Even if I don't speak one word, I want my life to tell that story. Even if someone just sees me in the street or someone says hello to me, I want them to notice a difference in me. And that's my challenge to all of us today. There is a difference they should notice. Live that difference. And if you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ in your life this morning, if you don't know that you are saved, if you don't know what your destiny is, then please don't leave this door without finding out. You can know that for sure. God has given salvation at the gift. We can't earn our way there and we can't, and we can't pretend as if we're, we're earning our way there or keeping it even ourselves. Salvation is a gift. It still is a gift. And so all of our lives should be a, a glory to God for that wonderful gift that we've received. God bless you. Thank you for your patience. And I pray it's been a blessing to you. Let's close with a final hymn.